Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Neil Ferguson. Neil is a historian, author of 17 books, most recently Doom, which I just finished and thoroughly enjoyed, um, and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Neil, welcome to World of DAS. Uh, it's good to be with you, Oren. I'm also a data nerd. Not, not many historians are, but anybody who knows my work will know that I have a penchant for historical data. And I love, I love x-axes that go back to the Middle Ages, and I just used to get high on historic bond market data. So I am actually also a data nerd as well as a historian. You definitely are, which is why you're here. You are in the club, um, as, as, well, as are our fellow listeners. Um, now, yeah, now I, I want to dive into history and data with you because you because you are such a, a data nerd. You know, a, a lot of people working in like the technology industry don't spend that much time studying history. Do you think things would be more different if they were more aware of the past? Yes, I do. When I moved to California, which is five years ago now, I was slightly shocked to find that uh, history had begun with the Google IPO and everything before that was essentially <laughs> Stone Age, not really worth studying. It was hard to get people around here to, to take history seriously. I mean, they really were the kind of people who'd done CS and, and if there'd been a history requirement, they'd sort of evaded it as far as possible. And I include Mark Zuckerberg in that because he never took my any of my Harvard courses, and he had the chance. Uh, and that explains all, all of Facebook's subsequent troubles. They would be at least 3x market cap if you took your class. I no, think, they'd be right? smaller, actually, because they would have done a whole series of wicked things that were obviously going to have adverse consequences for humanity. I mean, to be serious, the, the interesting thing about the technology world is that it is engaged in the, the latest of many transformations of the way in which humans interact. Most obviously, the internet was a revolution in communications, drastically lowered barriers to entry, essentially got rid of the established hierarchies, which were gatekeepers for information flows. And that, that was a disruption that did have a historical precedent, indeed, multiple. Like the printing press or... Printing press is the obvious one. I mean, a lot of people pay a kind of lip service to that without actually having studied it. But I tried in my, my last book, The Square and the Tower, to show exactly what the similarities and differences are and why it matters a lot that uh, the internet has evolved in a different way from, from printing and, and, and that form of, of publishing. And I, I think that once you, you think about of any of the issues that are currently burning issues in the world of technology with a historical framework, it all makes more sense. Same goes for things like antitrust or any of the issues of regulation that, that are currently being discussed. If you think of a data company, they're kind of essentially companies that catalog history. At SafeGraph, where I work, you know, our motto is we predict the past, right? And by the way, thank you for being a SafeGraph investor. Yeah, full disclosure, I'm, I'm, I'm part of Team SafeGraph. And exactly. I remember when, when you first ran that slogan past me, I, I loved it immediately because in, in truth, History does consist of, uh, of, of data, and the challenge is always the management and then interpretation of the data. I should have said the construction management and interpretation of the data. And so SafeGraph is part of what I see as a very exciting 
aspects of the, the revolution caused by the internet and mobile telephony, we can see at, at much higher frequency and in, with much more granular detail how people get around. Uh, and the history of humanity is partly the history of, of humanity's mobility. I, I love the fact that during the pandemic, SafeGraph helped me and many others see how mobility was being impacted uh, by the spread of not only the virus, but knowledge of and, and indeed fear of the virus. And so we were actually able, with SafeGraph's help, to write the history of the pandemic in real time. And I think that really helped understand what was going on. I'll, I'll give you a specific example. Right at the earliest stages of the pandemic, my colleague John Cochran at the Hoover Institution, a well-known economist, whose grumpy economist blog everyone should, should read, made a prediction. He said people's behavior will adapt to their understanding of uh, the virus and the disease it causes, and they will likely adjust their mobility in response to case numbers, hospitalization, and, and death data. That was a prediction, and he kind of modeled it out. And it, it turned out that this was right, and SafeGraph data helped prove the point that there were really quite clear links from news flow on the severity of, uh, of the pandemic and, and the way that people behaved. And then Austin Goolsbee, another economist, was able to show, again, looking back on the data, that the adaptive behavior of individuals actually mattered more than lockdown restrictions. Because if you compared adjacent places which had high versus low restrictions, behavior was extraordinarily similar. And so it seems like people adjusted their behavior more in response to their perception of risk than to what they were told to do by by government. And that, that I thought was a really interesting uh, insight, which we couldn't possibly have had without the kind of thing that SafeGraph produces. And when you think of like data companies broadly, how do you see their role in kind of like more accurately archiving historical events? It's first important to recognize that we've been doing this kind of thing for a long, long time. But the kind of data and the nature of archiving have both changed a lot. So if you go back to the really early period when professional history emerged as a branch of scholarship, what historians tended to focus on were the written records preserved usually in state archives. And this would be letters and diaries and the minutes of meetings and the, the acts of parliaments or the, or the decrees of kings. And that, that was what historians tended to do in the early phase of, of the profession, the 19th century when the Germans in particular said, you can't just make stuff up. You actually have to, you have to show that this was said and you have to have a reference to a document. Now, I think in the course of the 20th century, historians became more omnivorous and they started to look for other kinds of data. They started to look at non-public archives. I do a lot of work in non-private archives, looking at say business archives, trying to understand the decisions of corporations. Uh, and that was part of the change. But the other big uh, shift that occurred was we, we began to see that apparently boring things like price data from old newspapers uh, could help us understand uh, flows of, of trade, of, of goods and so forth. And, and, and then you discover that there's actually a wealth of, of statistical data going back surprisingly far, because even in the medieval period, 
the English crown, for example, was gathering data on prices and wages. And so economic history is born because there actually is a remarkably large reservoir of, of raw data about how the English economy works. And, and more recently, you get of course, much, much more of that stuff because the systematic collection of statistics for the purposes of, of making policy starts more or less late 19th, early 20th century and then becomes pretty much standardized around the world after, after the Second World War. And so the, the exercise of understanding the world by this stage is a combination of, of looking at the, the documents that are generated by public and private actors and then often juxtaposing the story, quite often different story that the data tell. And that's really been the core of my methodology, I, I, going right back to my early work, kind of looking at what people thought was happening and then looking at what actually was happening insofar as we can tease it out of, out of the statistics. Angela, it seems that most people in the world are more interested in history than Americans. I always thought that Americans are more interested maybe in the future and maybe Europeans are more interested in the past. How, how do you see that? And as you're kind of in your adopted new country, how do you, how do you see the, your fellow Americans as they're interacting with history? Well, I have uh, joked with my friend Graham Allison at Harvard that this is the United States of amnesia. And uh, the point we, we, we made when we wrote that, which is quite a few years ago now, was that the government uh, and government institutions are extremely bad at learning from the past. It's not well institutionalized. And so that it, it comes as a great surprise to people trying to run Iraq after 2003, that it's quite difficult to get cooperation and uh, it's quite hard to cope with an insurgency and all these things that really had been learned by Americans in Vietnam. Or in the Philippines or... Yeah. yeah, I mean, the history of American interventions in, in foreign countries goes back a long, long way. And yet it's not really part of the way in which officials are trained. In fact, what struck me most when I moved here, which was around 2002, was the tendency of decision makers to base their decisions on different disciplines like political science or economics. Uh, illustration of this point... Prior to the invasion of Iraq, I remember being told by somebody at the US Treasury that the sort of model they had in mind for post-Saddam Iraq was post-communist Poland. And I remember realizing at that moment with a terrible horror that they had no, no notion of how very different Poland and Iraq are as places. And so I think there's a sort of failure to institutionalize history which which means that the government has has a kind of structural amnesia and each administration seems as if it has to learn by making its own mistakes but there's another aspect to this which i think is a, a little bit to do with the hierarchy of, of of academia history is not a, a kind of high status subject to major in uh, whereas economics or computer science are and i mean i liked when i first came to the united states the fact that at Harvard, students would have to do a broad range of subjects. And so even the most nerdy computer science person was supposed to do something historical along the four-year way. But, but I, I, I came to the conclusion that this didn't really work and that students tended to game the system and, and they did not emerge with significant historical knowledge. Uh, indeed, it was possible really to get through Harvard with with effectively none. So I think there's an, an institutional problem at the academic level. But I'll, I'll say one thing in defense of Americans. When I go out into the big wide world and talk about my books, you know, when I go, go to 
bookstores or, or go on local radio, there is a significant section of the American public, it tends to be older, that is really interested in history and, and wants to argue about history, usually American history. And in other words, it's a debate that goes back to 1776. And then there's this whole public debate that has been sparked by critical race theory and Black Lives Matter, which the New York Times uh, diluted or distilled rather into the 1619 project that says, no, 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 the history of the United States is in fact bad stuff. It's about slavery and segregation and systemic racism. So there are very heated arguments about history going on. Uh, so it's not entirely true to say it's the United States of amnesia. I'm struck by how, how politically live history is. And I heard an interesting thing just the other day in a conversation with uh, an Emmons academic uh, at Yale, and she said she was struck by the fact that the students who lean left, kind of woke students, as we might call them, seem so exercised by history and, and past injustices that they, they seem almost to want to change it. And, and I thought that was a really interesting insight that a great deal of, of, of what drives people to pull down statues or engage in, in other kinds of protest is a, a deep, and passionate feeling that, that history is full of wrongs that one can somehow redress. Whereas in reality, of course, history is, is a done deed. It's, it's done, right? You can't go back. Uh, there is no time machine and we can't undo it. So I think there's a sort of sense in which that politicization of history, though in some ways it's good, leads to a slightly misplaced interest in the past. It's not our role to go back through the past and say what wicked people our ancestors were. That, that's not the point, because our value system, our norms are radically different from the norms of the 18th, 19th, and even the 20th century. So it's not that interesting to say that people in the 18th century had a different view of slavery than people today. That seems like an obvious and banal point. What we really want to understand about the 18th century are a different set of things. So history is alive in America, but it's almost in danger of becoming politicized beyond being useful. In Square in the Tower, which, which I love, it's a great book, um, you talk a lot about social networks. And one of the things I'm interested in is just like how things go viral. Um, you know, we, I recently chatted with uh, Sina Naral, who's a professor at MIT on a previous World of Death episode. And we, we talked about like, he studied how tweets go viral. Um, you know, is there, is there a good period of time that we could study to better kind of understand this current phenomena? Yeah, I think that it's worth looking at the impact of the printing press in Europe and then seeing how certain things went viral in the 16th and 17th century. Is this like the Martin Luther side of things? Or? Right. So Martin Luther's ideas went, went viral. Uh, he was challenging the Roman Catholic Church to reform itself, pointing out all kinds of abuses that had grown up in the previous centuries. He was essentially saying the institution was corrupt. And a hundred years before, if, I think if he tried that, he would have been on a fast track to being burnt at the stake as a heretic, and that would have been that. But the, the thing that made it different was that after 1517, these ideas could go viral because they were very easy to reproduce uh, with the printing press. And by that point, there were enough printing presses scattered all over Europe, and particularly in Northern Europe, uh, in the German speaking parts of Europe, for the ideas to, to be pretty impossible to put back in the bottle 
uh, the, the genie was out. And that, that's a very good starting point for understanding how things go viral in the early modern period, because we can see that. In some ways, he had a benefit that a lot of what he was saying about the church at the time was true. He was pointing out in, you know, problems, right. you know, whereas a lot of things that go viral today are, are, are maybe part of the reason they go viral is because they're untrue. Well, that's, yeah, that's right, Oren. And that brings me to the, the second example. At the same time, or shortly after Luther's ideas spread through uh, the German-speaking world and then through Europe as a whole, leading to breaks with Rome in all kinds of countries, including places as far away as, as England and Scotland, another crazy idea spread with equal speed. And that was that there are witches living amongst us, uh, uh, witches whose practices essentially involve uh, a compact with Satan. Now, this idea went viral, so viral that it crossed the Atlantic and became, and everybody knows the case of the Salem witch trials, became for a time, a really important part of, of the American experience. If one looks at Europe, the, the number of people put to death as witches is, is really very high. Thousands and thousands of people uh, during a, a period from the mid 16th to the mid 17th century are, are, are tried as witches and, and put to death. And, and that's a good illustration of a point that the square and the tar made, which is that once you create new network structures and you lower the cost of the spread of information, it's not necessarily just good ideas that go viral. It, it may be quite dangerous ideas that are nevertheless very, very compelling. And this, this, this brings us to the modern period. The problem with the internet is that the business model that evolved at Google and then was adopted by many other network platforms, whereby you, you monetize the data by selling ads, incentivizes the platforms to, to produce and disseminate content that's very engaging, keeps the eyeball on the screen. And, and that's, I think, a very strong argument for why we have the fake news extreme views problem on the internet. Uh, it's the rise of network platforms that have a business model that essentially promotes, it's designed to promote uh, engaging content, which is very often extreme views and fake news, and that, that's not a new problem, because clearly witches don't live amongst us, uh, and the people who are put to death were maybe eccentric uh, uh, people in the town or the village, but they certainly weren't witches. I think that's, that's the kind of problem that when the internet was going through that great structural transformation from the very decentralized uh, World Wide Web that Tim Berners-Lee envisioned to something dominated by network platforms, people really underestimated the downside risk. And I can remember the kind of happy talk, and you'll remember it too, from those, those uh, days uh, back in the, in, in, in the 2000s. Well, when everybody is connected, everything will be awesome. That was essentially the message. And the, the historians were kind of inaudibly shouting from the sidelines, no, 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 no. When everybody's connected, all kinds of crazy stuff is going to go around. And you're, you're really underestimating the, the risks of a highly, highly connected world. I know you study all these networks and you kind of, if you think of like the who you knows versus the what you knows, maybe the who you know is like the Paul Revere um, in the way. Um, you know, what type of person do you think was more important in the past? And do you think what type of person will be more important in the future? One way of thinking about importance is uh, to see how many biographies are written about somebody. If you go to the libraries, uh, you'll find a lot of biographies 
of George Washington. Uh, and you'll also find a lot of biographies of quite wicked people like Adolf Hitler. In fact, I think Hitler is out there in, in pole position when it comes to number of biographies of a historical figure. Now, importance in that sense means, I think, a, a consensus that begins during a person's lifetime and grows over the period after that, that they really mattered a lot. And that by implication, if they hadn't lived or if they died much younger, the world would have been different. If you then go back to contemporary sources and ask, well, were they really important in a different sense, in the sense of their connectedness? Were they in a network structure very central? Did they have a high degree centrality? Were they connected in critical ways to lots of different people? The answer can be quite different. In the case of Paul Revere, whom you mentioned, uh, Revere was not uh, one of the great thinkers of the American Revolution, and uh, the number of biographies is, is a lot smaller than the number of jo George Washington biographies. But if you look at the network structure of the revolutionary movement in New England, Paul Revere was one of two people with extraordinarily high connectedness, which means he was a member of multiple organizations, including a Masonic Lodge, that were very important in forming the revolutionary movement that ultimately successfully kicked uh, the British government out of the American colonies. And the argument of importance there is that at a critical point when he did his famous ride to uh, warn the people of, of Massachusetts of a major uh, British military operation, his connectedness meant that he was believed. He had credibility because he knew people. And Yeah, I mean, and this is, uh, this is now quite a familiar point because it's often been written about. Uh, uh, Martin Glad uh, Malcolm Gladwell uh, writes about it in one of his books. But the interesting thing is when you start drilling down and seeing what it was that made Revere so connected, it, it turns out that one of the things was his involvement in the movement we call Freemasonry. And surprise, surprise, a lot of the leaders of the American Revolution were Masons. And those lodges were really, really important in building a social network that was separate from the uh, the hierarchy of, of, of British society, that the, the British envisioned a kind of aristocratic order emerging in their American colonies. They even tried to create some elements of hereditary status, but that didn't take because there was a different network structure forming uh, in the colonies. So conclusion, if you want to think about the importance of an individual in history, don't just go with their fame. Because fame may itself be something of a construct. Behind the, the deeds of famous men, and it's usually men, there is a different version of events in which less obvious people are in fact crucial to the success of a movement. And this is true not just of the American Revolution. I think it's true of all revolutions. I think it's true of all the great revolutions, political and otherwise, in history. And let me illustrate this point with something very close to, to your world. In a way, or in you, you're part of, of an economic revolution that we associate with the rise of the internet. The first great economic revolution that changed the world completely was the Industrial Revolution. Now, who made the Industrial Revolution? There are heroic inventors who, who get a lot of the airtime if you read histories of the Industrial Revolution, but it's very clear that this was not really a revolution made by a few heroic individuals, that the improvements that made the steam engine increasingly efficient were the achievements of multiple people, some eminent, some just 
tinkering away in their workshops. So I like the idea that when you look at the Industrial Revolution, there's not really a convincing heroic account of it uh, in which just a handful of people transform the world. Right, you can't point to a, a Hamilton or a Lenin or anyone right. like that. Yeah, I mean, you can try. Uh, you can say James Watt was the heroic improver of the steam engine, but actually he was just one of a, a network of people who were all essentially obsessing about the same problem. How can we make these things more efficient? And the, the efficiency gains are the achievement of, of just a, a network of people all all noodling on the same problem. And I, that's to me, that's a more convincing account of how things happen. And, uh, and, and it's a sort of antidote to great man history. It's a, it's a history in which networks, social networks, do the transforming. And although some people get the fame, it's a very, it's an unfair world. You know, what is famous because uh, he just got associated with the innovation. Right. Or at the end of it, let's say Carnegie is very famous because he was rich exactly. or something. But Car Carnegie is famous not so much because of, of his economic achievements, but because of the philanthropy that he did in the final part of his life. And that, that's why his name is still remembered. The Rothschild name is extremely famous in finance to this day, even although now the Rothschilds are a relatively small financial uh, set of entities. But the reason that that name is famous is much has much more to do with the role they played in the 19th century in promoting Jewish emancipation, civil rights for Jews in England, France, uh, and the German-speaking world. So I, I think we, we often get a kind of skewed sense of, of who mattered in history because of the way that fame evolves. And fame itself is the product of the networks uh, that, that basically build history of the publishers who decide to publish biographies and the people who assign the books. I mean, we, we have to recognize that this notion of, of historical importance is, is, is itself the product of, of networks of, of education and publication. Now, if you and I were going to conspire together and start a secret society, like how should we do it? Definitely not with a podcast. That would be, <laughs> that would be rule number one. <laughs> I think it's interesting because networks that really want to change the world cannot be too open about it. Because if you, if you say um, on the, uh, on your podcast, we're, we're going to, we're going to uh, conspire together to, to change the world. You're kind of giving the game away to the vested interests who might not want you to. So when I was writing the square in the tower, I was very struck by the story of the Illuminati it's a great story because people have heard of the Illuminati. They've heard the conspiracy theory version, which has found its way from the late 18th century all the way to the novels of Dan Brown. And so there's there's a kind of name recognition there, but nobody nobody actually knows what the Illuminati were. Unless they read your book. Oh, unless they read my book. And not enough people have done that. It's still available in all good bookstores. If the real story is fascinating, and we, we can actually reconstruct it now. It was a sort of group of, of South German uh enlightenment radicals who really wanted to bring about a quite drastic change that would undermine the power of, of organized religious authority and advance ideas of enlightenment. But because this is such a revolutionary and, and indeed dangerous uh, thing to do, they, they created a very, very secretive uh, society, a bit like a Masonic lodge with initiation rites, elaborate language, and a set of, of stages through which initiates had to pass before the, the true purpose of the organization was revealed to them. And this was quite smart because uh, you, you just don't want to let people in without vetting them. The biggest problem for any 
group of people who want to change the world is that they're they're taking on vested interests and it's very important therefore to avoid being infiltrated or having a double agent or yeah. something like that yeah and this is such a, a common problem historically for anybody trying to organize uh, a change even if it's just to change a monarch or change a prince that we ought to be far more aware of it today but again because we don't really think very historically about our own time I think I'm struck by the way in which people very explicitly say we're getting together to change the world. And one reason that those people generally don't change the world is that they have shown their their intentions far too transparently. I mean, if you really, really pose a threat to vested interests, um, it's best not to, to flag your intentions when you're a relatively weak, poorly resourced and rather decentralized network. So if anyone's listening, Neil and I are not uh, starting a secret society. No. We're definitely not doing that. Definitely not. No, we're just we're actually pillars of, of the established order. That's what we are. We, 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 we like things as they are. We would never dream of changing them. Um, but that's I mean, I think that's one of the problems of a very transparent world in which we quite readily, too readily, reveal what we're up to, that we underestimate the extent to which our readiness to give up our, our data may be in, entrenching an established order that we, we might not like. I mean, I hear all the time about the problem of inequality and how we need to do something about that. It, it seems to me fairly obvious that, that inequality is hugely beneficial to a tiny percentage of, of people who have billions uh, of, of dollars of, of wealth. And if you, if you expect the wealth holders to let you radically alter the distribution of wealth without a fight, you really haven't learned anything from history. And, and this might seem a little odd, but I can assure you that in most countries in the world, the, the, the principal owners of wealth, the people who are in the 0.01% of the distribution, really do not want transformative social change. And, and they are quite well positioned to stop it. They would be the obvious um, uh, disbeneficiaries of any of yeah. any change. Right? And they yeah. have good reason to be wary, because if one goes back to the early 20th century, we're only talking about a century ago, uh, or to China in the period after 1949, what happened in those revolutions was that the wealthy elite, the people who owned the wealth, were not only expropriated, but often were killed. Uh, Frank Dakota's book on the, the Maoist revolution shows that in the immediate aftermath of seizing power, the Chinese communists carried out mass slaughter of landlords, of landowners, uh, that the Bolsheviks took a similar approach, not just to the monarchy, but to the aristocracy. It was very prudent if you were an aristocrat in the uh, period after 1917 to get the hell out of Russia, uh, say goodbye to the say goodbye to the, the vast estate and be glad that you still had your life. So. I think we've slightly forgotten how high the stakes are in all conversations about, about social justice. The stakes are very high. Now, I, I just finished your book, Doom, which I loved. Um, and one of the things I, was, I started thinking when I was reading is, is I started thinking about Paul Ehrlich, who, who wrote The Population Bomb, where he predicted worldwide famine, I think, in the 70s and 80s. He wrote the book, I believe, in like 1968. And at the time, there were all these smart people that believed in this catastrophe, this overpopulation was going to lead to you know uh, massive starvation. And they kind of fail to see that we could invest in technology, in this case, the green agriculture revolution, which really changed things. And there seems to be plenty of catastrophizing today. Is this just a historical thing where smart people kind of tend toward that? 
or is there a legitimacy in all this catastrophizing? Well, the idea that we were going to produce too many people um, and that there would be disastrous consequences uh, goes a long way back to, to Thomas Malthus, uh, who's, who's a, a clergyman in, in the late 18th century who writes his essay on the principle of population, making the observation that population increases geometrically and the uh, and the food supply is arithmetic. And, and that, that idea has had a very long lifespan, ironically, because as he was writing, a true agricultural revolution was already underway in England that was causing the productivity of English agriculture to, to soar. And the story of, of the period after Malthus's uh, life was a story uh, in which the world economy proved him wrong. Uh, and, and that that agricultural revolution, which really we can date from Western Europe in the 18th century, becomes pretty widespread. But it's nothing compared with the Green Revolution, which is a truly global transformation in the efficiency of, of agriculture. And broadly speaking, the story of the agricultural, commercial, and industrial revolutions is a story where growth of productivity in every sector solves the Malthus problem and allows human population to reach extraordinary heights and and we're still growing and the projections of the united nations tell us that that we'll pass the nine billion mark that that we'll only really think think about having a plateau towards the end of this century most of that projected growth of course is in africa that the, the plateau's already been arrived at in in much of the world but the human species is still going to keep growing according to the un right through this century especially in africa okay so that's the story, that's the backstory. People who worry about the end of the world um, belong in another even longer tradition, going all the way back to the earliest religions. It's amazing how fascinated human beings are by the end of the world as an idea. And so it's a very important part of, of Christian uh, and Muslim uh, uh, theology uh, that, that, that the world is gonna end the eschaton, the eschatology of, 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 of religion is that it's all going to end in some spectacular sequence of events that will end the, the world and, uh, and usher in some new, some new era. It does seem like some people like kind of want the world to end. Oh yeah. Um, like, I think this would be a bad thing probably if the world ended, but, but a lot of people kind of are in some way hoping yeah. that the world ends in a kind of a weird way. Oh yeah. It's, Weird is kind of putting it mildly, both evangelical Christians who think about the end time as a, as a rapture in which a divine utopia will succeed this uh, world of sin, have uh, uh, their, their counterparts in the world of Islamic extremism where uh, you are in fact engaged in, uh, in jihad against uh, the infidel to fast track yourself to paradise, but the ultimate goal once again, is, is the end of the world and, and, and a new era of, of divine virtue. And, and that, that idea is so powerful that it seems impossible to eradicate. You would have thought that the advances I talked about a minute ago, uh, the Industrial Revolution, the dramatic improvement in not only in living standards, but life expectancy, you'd have thought that those things would have made people somewhat less uh, needy of a blissful future state. I, I mean, I can understand the medieval peasant wanting to believe in an afterlife that was really much superior to his earthly lot. 
But it's harder to understand why somebody living in the early 21st century with all the material comforts available uh, would nevertheless elect to become a terrorist. Uh, and yet that pattern has repeated itself. Uh, it's actually not the poor downtrodden types who become the most dangerous people in extreme uh, ideological organizations. So we seem to be dealing here with some profound fascination with the end of, of the world. And I think it carries over in, in a strange way into the more extreme climate alarmists, people like Greta Thunberg, who, while they like to talk about science, in fact, seem to me to personify a distinctly religious millenarian tradition. When people say the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't do X, the reality is that they're engaged in massive exaggeration of the of the downside risk. I mean, it, it's clear that the planet is warming and that will have all kinds of adverse consequences, but it's a stretch to say that it'll be the end of the world. And, and not even the most negative scenario of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says that, it just says that there'll be lots of adverse consequences. And, and that won't even mean excess mortality because people will be able to move it's not that fast acting. It's not like a pandemic. So the idea that the end of the world is coming because of uh, man-made greenhouse gas emissions is, is not actually a very scientific idea at all. And in the book Doom, I try to argue that that is just one of a whole series of, of sources of disasters that will kill relatively small percentage of the world population. The challenge for us is not the end of the world, which is a pretty far distant scenario. I mean, it's coming at some point, this planet won't support human life. But I mean, really, there's nothing we can do about that. That's just that's just the way the world uh, is going to go. But over a very, very long time horizon, our problem in the much more short term of our lives, our children's lives, and their children's lives is just managing the inevitable disasters that history show, throws at us from pandemics to extreme uh, weather events in a better way, because I don't think we manage them very well these days, uh, despite our vastly greater scientific knowledge. So my sense is that the, the fascination with the end of the world, which by the way, also drives us to watch apocalyptic science fiction movies, it almost distracts us from the more humdrum challenges that that disasters pose. We're kind of sitting there fascinated by the end of the world instead of giving some serious thought to what we can do to mitigate the effects of, of global warming, which clearly is gonna happen. I mean, there's no credible pol political economy I see that stops China building coal burning power stations. We can talk about it till we're blue in the face. They're gonna keep building them until it suits them to stop. So I see global warming as, as almost inevitable at this point. The question is, how do we mitigate its adverse consequences? But some other people would rather talk about the end of the world and say, as Greta Thunberg said in January of 2020, you must stop your emissions right now, now, instantly, all emissions, which is a pretty unrealistic thing to, to recommend. Ironically, we did that, not because of anything she said, but because of, of COVID, we actually ran the experiment. Let's see what happens if we shut down manufacturing, first in China, then in Europe, and then in North America. And it's true, we really reduced emissions for that period of, of the really extreme lockdowns last year. We also caused unemployment to soar to Great Depression levels for a short period of time until we realized it wasn't sustainable. But that was a kind of interesting experiment to run, because I think it showed that 
the kind of uh, extinction rebellion arguments aren't they're not politically viable uh, it's not like we really have the option to shut down manufacturing and stop immediately consuming fossil fuels so why why argue for something that unrealistic i think the answer is because it's deeply satisfying to say the end of the world is coming i've had a revelation and only revolutionary change can avert it. I mean, I don't see a profound difference between that state of mind and the state of mind of, of, of medieval uh, saints. One of the things you talked a lot about in the book is, is this idea of Cassandras, right? And in some ways, they, they can do good things. Cassandras can point out problems, right? And um, but, but they can also point out too many problems. You know, the Cassandras probably have predicted 90 of the last two pandemics and, you know, all these different things all, all the way through. And of course, every time you point out a problem, it means we're, we're probably uh, not, you know, it, it's becoming very, very expensive to build a bridge or very expensive to, because Cassandras are constantly pointing out all these issues. So it becomes very, very difficult to innovate. So on one hand, Cassandra's do all these good things. They point out these issues, and you know, you talked about, um, you know, the 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 shuttle tragedy, tragedy, or some of these other things that maybe if they listened to a Cassandra, um, maybe we wouldn't have happened. But on the other side, you could say, well, we we listen, maybe we listen too much to Cassandra's today. So how 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 do we decide? Um, you know, because Cassandra's are mostly wrong. Um, so how do we decide when to listen and when not to listen to these Cassandra's? Well, you've, you've framed it in the right way, Oren. I mean, Cassandra, the original Cassandra of Greek tragedy was not heeded, even though her prophecy proved to be accurate. And, and that has led to a certain view of the world that says each time a disaster happens, take 9-11, uh, there was a Cassandra, it was Richard Clarke, who, who foresaw it. And if only we had listened to Richard Clarke, it wouldn't have happened. And you, you can retrofit uh, any disaster narrative that way. You will always find somebody who predicted it. The number of people who predicted a pandemic uh, was very large, but it was almost like a sort of annual event in, in TED Talks to predict. Yeah. And Richard Clark, historically, even in the 80s and 90s, was constantly predicting all these things that turned out to be wrong. Nouriel Rabini predicted a financial crisis every year, beginning in 2002, I think he may have done it before then, but that was when I first met him until finally he got one. And then he subsequently kept predicting them. And you're, you're remembered for that one you got right, not all the, the ones that you called that didn't happen. So I think the correct conclusion is not that we should sort of have a Cassandra in every government agency, because that would have a completely paralyzing effect. As you rightly say, Cassandras are available to predict any disaster you like, any day of the week. And if you infer from their prediction that we must stop emitting carbon dioxide, uh, or we must stop Indians from having children, which was, of course, the consequence of that Ehrlich uh, prediction that the world was going to have mass famines, that led to a policy of forced sterilization in India that was really very disastrous. It also led uh, indirectly to the one-child policy in, in China. It, it's very important, actually, not to heed or take too literally people who prophesy disastrous outcomes because they may be quite wrong. And, and you may take steps to avert disaster that will have worse consequences than uh, might otherwise have happened. This is a point Bjorn Lomberg makes on the, on the issue of, of climate, which is, which is an important one. If you take steps that slow growth to uh, near zero, 
you will have fewer resources available to deal with the problem of climate change. And so you may actually make matters worse uh, than they might have been. So that's the first point to make. The second point to make is that it is inherently impossible to predict most disasters. And therefore, Cassandras are really, though different from the, the astrology column in the, in the local newspaper uh, with your, 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 your horoscope, it's actually impossible to predict most disasters because disasters are not normally distributed. I mean, I can, I can attach some probability to one or both of us being involved in an automobile accident in the coming 12 months, and that's how the insurance industry functions. But I really can't attach a meaningful probability to a huge earthquake occurring during our discussion. We're both in California. Notionally, there is a big earthquake going to happen here at some point, but we have no idea when. There is, in fact, no way of, of saying when that will happen and how big it will be. And the same applies to most of the things that we think of as disasters. They're either randomly distributed, like big wars. Hey, there could be a really big war between the US and China at some point in the next few years. There could be, but I cannot really attach a meaningful probability to that. Because as a man named L.F. Richardson showed a long time ago, all the way back before World War II, the distribution of war historically follows no meaningful pattern. Uh, and, and that's the critical point. Since we can't predict catastrophes, in fact, Cassandras are, are superfluous. All we really need to do is react rapidly when a disaster begins. That's the, that's the optimal strategy. Uh, because if you, if you constantly kind of brace yourself for a whole range of disasters, you, you may actually find yourself paralyzed. Better to keep on going aware that some disaster may strike and, and being ready for that eventuality, as in the first tremor is the point at which you probably want to get out uh, from under an object that might crush you. Uh, the first reports of a novel uh, coronavirus in Wuhan were a cue to start adapting behavior just in case it was uh, a highly contagious uh, and dangerous virus. I, I've come to realize writing Doom that it's not Cassandra's we need. It's just early warning systems. Early warnings and rapid responses to them are the, the way to go rather than modeling, uh, creating some artificial projection that says at date X, a disaster why will happen or or some sort of like more anti-fragile type of system yeah like and i think it was interesting to me that back in january when the pandemic was at its early early stages nasim talab was one of a very small number of people who said uh we need to take really quite drastic early action to contain this because there's a non-zero probability it's a very contagious dangerous virus and he did a great paper with yanir Bariam and, uh, and Joe Norman saying just that. It was short and it was absolutely spot on. And, and I think it was interesting that Nassim, who came up with the idea of anti-fragility and of, of, of a black swan in an earlier book, was so quick to see that there was a huge downside risk in what was happening in, in Wuhan back in January last year. Now, one thing I'd love to talk to you about is, is just the idea of playing with ideas. Because when you play with ideas, you're essentially kind of thinking outside the box and um, in, in some ways, it isn't really safe to play with these ideas publicly uh, because you need the freedom to be wrong at, these, at the kind of the ideation stage of the idea. How does one or how do you play with these ideas in a safe way? And then how, how can you do it in a way where you, you avoid or at least mitigate things like self-censorship? 
Well, it used to be perfectly possible to say outrageous things uh, at a, an economic seminar. Uh, it used to be at, at universities that you could uh, dare to think, as uh, Immanuel Kant said in his essay, What is Enlightenment? And indeed, that was what drew me through to that to, to academic life as a, as a young man, the thought that here was a domain in which one could think freely with academic freedom as a special dispensation. Yeah, in some ways the idea of tenure was yeah, that, right? Because yeah. you, you, you couldn't be fired. Uh, and, and so for, for a long time, really the early part of my career, I, I was able to write uh, what were considered outrageous things uh, with impunity. Well, Empire, in some ways, was a was a controversial book, or something. Yeah, I mean, my first yeah. my first uh, books were controversial. For example, The Pity of War argued that Britain should not have intervened in World War One. We should just have let Germany win. And uh, to put it very simply, and and that was a quite contrarian uh, and controversial thing to write. Empire, which came out in I think two thousand three, said on balance the British Empire was a good thing. Uh, the subtitle in, I think, the UK edition was How Britain Made the Modern World. And the book argued that you couldn't really imagine the modern world uh, without the British Empire. And a world without it would have almost certainly been less good because a whole set of ideas uh, would not have spread as far as they, they did. Uh, now, I could say those things in the 1990s and the early 2000s. I could even do a TV series around empire. And that has become much harder today because a, a set of ideas have taken hold in academia that essentially inhibit um, the expression of, of ideas that, uh, that some people find triggering or uncomfortable or offensive. Uh, and, and this is a really interesting change that's happened and it's, it's taking place quite rapidly because I wasn't really aware of it 10 years ago and I became very aware of it uh, starting, oh, I don't know, around about 2011. Uh, when a much more aggressive culture ev evolved, partly on the internet, partly on campus, uh, where if you said something that people found offensive or, or, or triggering, you, you would be denounced um, and the denunciation would then be amplified and calls for your uh, sacking would suddenly be all over social media. Academic life used to be a place where quite obnoxiously brilliant people could be obnoxious and brilliant with no, with no penalty. And that's no longer the case. Now, I can't believe that that's a good step. I mean, people's feelings may be less hurt, but we're just never going to have such brilliant ideas. I'll tell you, just to give you an example, the kind of person I have in mind. In Doom, I tell the story of Morris Hillman, who probably saved more human lives than any individual in history because he invented so many successful vaccines, including one against the 1957 Asian flu. And he was a bit of a jerk. Well, he was a, a, clearly a jerk. He used to, maybe jerk's not the right word. He was very mercurial and he had a, he had a routine where he was hiring people for the laboratory uh, where he would show them shrunken heads uh, and say, you know, this is, this is what happened to the people who failed, you know? Of course, they weren't real shrunken heads. I think his kids had made them. But that kind of thing, that's sort of the, that's the, to me, that's the spirit of the innovative mind. And it's slightly red of tooth and claw. I mean, you're not going to feel terribly comfortable uh, if Morris Hillman is, is directing your laboratory, because you know that if you screw up, you'll, you'll certainly get yelled at. You may get fired. But that culture, that culture is kind of no longer viable. 
even in even in the private sector, even in tech companies, be the obnoxious CEO is a kind of at this point, endangered species. Before we leave, just two personal questions. So, you know, you and your wife, Ayan, you're both very well-known public intellectuals, which is somewhat rare for a married couple, right? You're both super successful authors, speakers. You engage sometimes on similar topics. How does your partnership help sharpen each other? I'm very lucky to be married to Ayan, who is, is uh, brilliant, uh, brave, and beautiful, which is a great trifecta. And it means that in our household, uh, we are talking not only about who takes which child to which uh, activity, which of course is what married couples have to talk about when their kids are nine and three years old, but we are also talking about what is the significance of the fall of Kabul? Uh, what will the consequences be of a, a fresh wave of migration from Afghanistan? I've been over a dinner at your house and, and with the nine-year-old and the three-year-old, and that is exactly what you talk about in front of them, which is amazing. Yeah, and, and our nine-year-old uh, is quite loquacious and, and has his own often strong and, and, and interesting views. So that, that's, I think that's really hugely important. At dinner table, I grew up in a pretty talkative family, and the dinner table was a place where one could one could road test one's ideas, and I I encourage I encourage Thomas, who's nine, to do this. I mean, he came up last year with a brilliant insight, and one of many. Uh, but this is the one that really really beat all the others. He said, "Dad, um, there are two pandemics at the moment," and I said, "How's that?" He said, "Well, was COVID nineteen, which everybody knows about, but there's Wokeed nineteen, and Wokeed nineteen is more contagious because you can get it from the internet." Now that's not a bad insight for somebody who's who's, I guess he must have been eight when that hit him. And almost certainly that's your child or an Ayan's <laughs> child, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the benefit of, of, you want to have your family be a place where ideas can be can be freely discussed. We, we definitely have a free speech, a full radical free speech zone uh, at our home, if nowhere else. And okay, last question we ask all of our guests, if you can go back in time, what advice would you wish you could have given to your younger self? Oh, that's easy. Back when I was 16, the way in which the education system worked was that you had to narrow down, if you wanted to go to an English university, the number of subjects, essentially to three. And I remember I had to choose uh, three subjects to do at A-level in order to apply to Oxford. And I had to, to my choices were limited. I could not do uh, history, English, and mathematics. And the school said, well, that's just not possible for timetabling reasons. And so I ended up doing history, English, and Latin. My Latin is not bad, but was never great. But my mathematics suffered hugely from that choice. And I should, if I could go back to, to Neil age 16, uh, I would say, stick to your guns. Just insist on maths, do mathematics, uh, even if it means doing it with a private tutor. Do not stop doing math because it's extremely, it's not like history, which you can kind of carry on in a, a sort of spare time way. You have to really keep focused on math all your life. And I, I didn't do that. And it's kind of irretrievable when you realize, as I did, oh, I must have been five or six years later that I really needed it for some of the more econometric stuff that I wanted to do. It was too late. It had gone. Um, so that's the one piece of advice. And I give it to all people listening. I mean, don't, don't stop doing math uh, because it's really impossible to sustain 
by yourself if you if you have any significant interruption. All right, this has been great. Thank thank you, Neil, for being on World of Das. Thank thank you so much. You made me feel I hadn't been funny enough, Oren. But you ask <laughs> non funny questions, dude. It's not my fault. I mean, if you, I, you're I, a I agree. Straight if man. I was a better interviewer, this would have been a better. Uh, this definitely you're, would have been a more you're a funny. Terrible podcast. straight man. I, we, we should never do comedy together. <laughs> this is a very very good point. All right, thank you again. Thanks, Oren. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of Das is brought to you by SafeGraph.